So we're going to be uh, finishing up most of all of our Genesis reading. Uh, well, actually, we are finishing up today because today is Genesis 50. We've been doing this for 50 days now. I don't know about you, but I am getting a lot out of my time in the Word of God and my time reflecting upon God and visiting with God and asking God a lot of questions. Uh, and uh, it's just been super beneficial to me. How many of you would consider your family dysfunctional? That would be me. Um, So I think we are all to some degree. It probably determines who you're comparing your family to 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 come out with how dysfunctional you are, right? Um, But I think that we all are. You know, when you were reading through Genesis... Isn't it just like we just go from one dysfunction family to another dysfunctional family and to another? And it just seems like it is all there. But just to, so that you, you know, reading through Genesis, I have no doubt that you're probably thinking pretty good about your family right now, though. Uh, like, hey, maybe we are a little better than normal. Um, so I don't know. But I do think that uh, to encourage you a little bit, that uh, even Jesus grew up in a very dysfunctional family. You know, his brothers really had a difficult time accepting him for who he was and probably was completely confused by the whole thing. I was just reading through Matthew chapter 13 this week, and it says, Is not this the, the carpenter's son? Is not this Mary, our mother, called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simeon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? I wonder how many sisters he had. But the point is, is that isn't this... Jesus's family. The the thing is, is I don't know how you picture this, but I could just picture, you know, some during the teenage years, they're sitting around table, and Mary's just looking over at you know James and just say, James, what's bothering you? And he's like, nothing, you know. And she's like, now James, we don't have secrets around this table. What's bothering you? And you could just hear Simeon under his breath saying, Yeah, sure, we don't. And she's like. Simeon Lee? Actually, I don't know if it was Lee or not, but (laughs) what is that about, right? And he's just like, well, you say we don't have any secrets, but you also say that Jesus is special because he has a different father. And all the kids are just always constantly making fun of us, saying that you were unfaithful. Mom, were you unfaithful? I don't know how you picture any of that happening, but what I know is that There was some dysfunction even in the family of Jesus, just trying to sort through all that was going on. Do you think there would have been some tension around all of that? But we definitely see it here in the Old Testament. And let me tell you something. I think Joseph's family was dysfunction on steroids. You know, we... We have like three flows to our sermon today, and it's, I call it flows or, or uh, just parts because it is a story that we are in. You know, Jacob and Joseph's story pretty much is most of Genesis, right? And we have this flow with, with Joseph's story, and so I kind of want to just kind of stay along that theme. And so we're going to divide it up into this three ways. We're going to see the plot, we're going to see the pain, and then hopefully we will see the healing. So the plot is just that it's built on dysfunction, this dysfunction of this family. If, if you have read 
you know, and kept up on your reason, you just see how crazy it is. I mean, Reuben is, he is the oldest, and he sleeps with his stepmom. Simeon and Levi murder an almost an entire village of family because they are, um, because of what happened to their sister. Uh, Judah's son's wife seduces him to sleep with her because he wouldn't keep his word, and on and on that we could go. But today I want us to focus on how the brothers treat their youngest brother. Now, usually, almost always, it's kind of like a a Kelsey brother scenario when you're talking about brothers, right? I don't know if you saw any of those interviews with the Kelsey brothers, uh, but it, it doesn't matter. But basically, it's just typical. You know, he was annoying when, when Travis was little, and he just, you know, was always in the way and, he, and things like that. And if you had a little brother, I guarantee there was times that you wanted to whack him a couple times or whack her if it was a sister a couple times. But you would never, ever think about murdering them. You would say, I'm going to kill you. But it wasn't like, I'm really thinking about letting the animals eat your body and uh, get done with you. But that is what we have. When I was a teenager, my oldest brother and I really went through a time where we fought all the time. I mean, about this the silliest, stupidest things, and my dad was sick of it. One time he came home from work, he had these boxing gloves. I don't know where he come up with them. But, and he made a little makeshift rink out there and he says i am done with this and he hauled us out there made us put these boxing gloves on you guys are going to duke it out right here and we're just balling i mean i'm like 16 years old i'm just i don't want to do this it's something that was different about like you making me do it you know at the time but i never really wanted to hurt him like hurt him hurt him for just hurting him say kind of thing But that is what we have that's going on here. So when Joseph was 17 years old, he encountered this dream with God. And basically what it was is God says, you're going to rule over all of your family, all your brothers, your dad, everybody. You're you're going to be in charge over them. And he was confused by it, but excited about it nonetheless because God's talking to him. But in Genesis chapter 37, verse 8, it says, So they hated him even more for the dreams and for his words. Hated him even more, meaning that they hated him anyway. And we're not talking, again, we're not talking about just brotherly disagreements and that kind of thing. This was a deep-seated hate, like hate-hate. And in verse uh, 37, verse 4, it says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And there was just a lot of bitterness that was going on. They hated Joseph so much that one time they saw him coming in a distance, right? And they were plotting, it says, to kill him. I mean, literally plotting and literally finding, thinking of ways to kill him. The animosity that, uh, that has grew here was murderous, you know. Reuben just said, hey, we can't cross that line. And so Reuben's the one who rescued you know, Joseph from being murdered and just thrown into a cistern. But when he was gone, which nobody knows where he went, but when he came back, they had actually, and Judah was, and that's really important for us to know in the plot, right, is that Judah was instrumental in saying we should sell him, you know, and they did. They sold him to a band of, you know, gypsies, uh, the Ishmaelites, uh, merchants along the way. And that's in Genesis 37. 
And then you just have this roller coaster ride of Joseph. You know, being sold there and then taken to Potiphar, being sold again. And then he seems like he's doing really good just to be betrayed by Potiphar's wife, and then he gets thrown into prison. And then he eventually gets out of that, and we know the story, but if this was real life, and it is real life, but if this was like your life or a friend's life or something like that, you'd be like, how in the world could they come out of this and not just be full of bitterness and anger and strife and feeling of revenge. I mean, how is it that they could not? But that's the plot. Now we need to move to the pain. (laughs) It just would have been like, made more sense if we read about how angry Joseph was, or even a verse that expressed that to some degree, or how, you know... um, I, should, I, I suppose we do have that, and we will get to that. But, but it just seems he's a pretty remarkable person. You know, his temperament, his demeanor just seems like no other that we've come in contact with. We're looking for somebody that will just show us a little hint of goodness. And we finally find Joseph. And then we're like, how is it that there's goodness here? You know, it's just surprising. He's kind. He seems to be kind and smart and talented. He's trustworthy everywhere he goes. He, people are drawn to him. People aren't drawn to bitter, angry, you know, uh, hateful type people. But they were drawn to him. He was compassionate. He overcame all of that happened to him in just an, an amazing way. Let me just pause for a moment and just reflect on how easy it is for life's pain to really affect us. Let me just give you some examples. Becky has not been to church for over a year. The leaders of her last church sided against her when she brought up a concern over the inappropriate advancements by a worship leader. She had tried but could not seem to get past the bitterness She thought the church cared about her. Adam's parents constantly belittled him when he was growing up. Now as an adult, he suffers from depression, anxiety, and cannot figure out why he can't get over it. Laura's husband does not seem interested in meeting any of her emotional needs. It is distant and cold. He is distant and cold, and she tries to talk to him about it. Over time, she has given up hoping that he will ever change and seems sees no reason to continue in the marriage. Zach cannot bring himself to attend his parents' 50th wedding anniversary. The lack of interest in his life and his family has hurt him so much that he wants nothing to do with them, let alone to honor their 50th years of marriage. Becky cannot sleep at night. She keeps having nightmares about her mom who abused her as a child, even though her mother had been dead for 10 years. Becky still cannot forgive her for all of the pain. Joanna's best friend lied about her to her boyfriend, causing her to break up with him. Now Joanna's friends and her former boyfriend are dating. Every time Joanna sees them at school, she feels betrayed all over again and can't stop thinking about it. Tom finds out his co-worker had been criticizing him to the boss and making negative comments about his work. The boss has elevated his co-worker and demoted Tom. Tom can't stop thinking of the ways 
that he wants to get even with the coworker. The reason that is so important is because that is what's typical, right? Somebody betrays you, you want to get back. You want to pull back. You want to distance yourself. You can't get over thinking about the anger and the bitterness and, the, and the just how that made you feel. And yet all the way through the story, we just don't have that unfolding in the midst of this. It truly is remarkable, I think. It isn't to say that Joseph, like, didn't have to work through things, though. You did pick up on that, I'm assuming. I found a couple of places that it shows us that Joseph did have to, like, process and work through. One of them is just the naming of his boys there in Genesis 41. Did you see that? Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all of my father." And all my father's house. He names his firstborn son because he finally did come to grips with it. He finally did work through that. It was only because of the grace of God helping him in the midst of that. And so he names, you name your kids important things back then. And he names this kid the most important thing that would show the greatest thing that, that about his life at that point, And that is just getting over his past. He names his second son Ephraim, which means, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph knew all the affliction that he underwent, but he also knew who pulled him up out of that affliction. And he names his son. So it just shows us that he did have to work through things, no doubt. It also shows us this, I think, in Genesis 20, or 42, when his brothers finally made their way to Egypt because of the famine and they were looking for food and they come to Joseph who, you know, orchestrated there being lots of food because God had made that known to him. And they show up and Joseph recognizes his brothers. In verse 7 it says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where did you come from? He said. And they said, from the land of Cana to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. Again, it says that, right? But they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And what that means, the nakedness land, you're just looking for how to take over this. You're a spy to try to conquer us. In other words, he knows that that's not what their intent was. But Joseph's reaction, can you imagine? The chapter before that says that he named his boys that he got over the past. And sometimes that happens. Like, we feel like we are over it. But something comes and all of a sudden just opens up all of those wounds again. And it's just like it all comes back. And it's all like, oh... And that's what's going unfolding here. And even though it's just a chapter that separates these, this is at least two years, we know, because we know that we are two years into the famine now. We know that when he named his boys, it was before the famine started. It was when everything was good. You don't have kids, you know, one day and have another one the next day. So there was some time here that he was over it, but it all came flooding back when he saw his brothers. And there was some 
anger that was coming up within him, accusing them of this. But he turned that anger really quick, and it just shows that the person of Joseph, instead of just bringing revenge and doing what he did, he decided to test them. And so there is this point of testing that goes on, which takes us into the flow of the the last thing I want us to see, and that is healing. Because it is through this testing that we do discover that Joseph finds a completeness of his pain. Like before this encounter with his brothers, maybe he just figured out how to suppress it, is what we do a lot, right? And that's why a lot of times it comes back up when we see somebody or we get back into their connection or they do something goofy again and this brings it all back up again. But they never really ever get rid of it or are completely healed of it. But what we see is that through this testing is that Joseph is completely released from it. Now, it takes a long time for the brothers to be convinced because he has to say to them a couple times. But we see this. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us this. Hebrews 12, verse 14, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Like, see to it that that everybody is okay and finds God's grace. That no root of bitterness spring up and causes trouble. Because that's what happens when we have been wounded and hurt. There's this bitterness that comes up, and this bitterness ends up really destroying the person who holds it, the people who are around them. Can you imagine if Joseph had, like, reacted in bitterness? I mean, we'd be like, well, that makes sense. But can you imagine the destruction that would have unfolded here? And by it, many become defiled. And so the New Testament is trying to help us to just have this attitude that we see unfolding with Joseph. Now, there's no indication here that it was God who came to Joseph and says, Joseph, I want you to test your brothers. I think that that is significant, okay? I don't think God is against it. In fact, I think God is happy and glad that, it is do, that's, that it's unfolding this way, but I don't think this was God's plan. I think this was God allowing this to unfold because it's going to be what heals Joseph and his family. And boy, does it, right? I mean, through these three different ways of testing them, there is some healing that takes place. Judah gets an opportunity. This is huge, remember? Judah's the one who said, hey, let's sell him to the merchants. And they all followed that. Judah also is the one who says to his father, look, if I don't bring Benjamin back, then you can, it'll just be on my head. Like he was wanting this redemptive opportunity to do what he should have done with his brother Joseph, right? He goes and it doesn't work out, you know. This is all falling apart. And he, all of a sudden, Joseph, through his testing, is, is going to um, bring 
punishment upon Benjamin because he has the cup. And you go read the story if you need all the detail. That's amazing. But Judah stands up for Benjamin, which is what Joseph was really after anyway. Has, has any of these boys changed in what he comes to as they have? But there is just some kind of redemptive quality in that that J- Judah gets to do this and stand up. There is some redemptive quality, I think, all the way through all of these boys here. Jacob finally, I think, comes really understanding the big picture like he's never understood it before. You can read Hebrews eleven twenty one if you want a little bit more insight into that. But I think this family has received healing. What was the biggest moment? From my perspective, it was in chapter twenty or forty five. And it's when Judah, you know, is willing to sacrifice himself for his little brother. And that there's no anger, animosity, but he's taking care of a little brother the way you're supposed to take care of a little brother. And Joseph just crumbles. By the way, from 45 on, is there a lot of tears being shed? It is just like, it is weepy, weepy, all the... And rightly so, because of how much pain and how much healing is taking place. But in verse 45, look at this, because I think this is a real crucial thing to to make known of. I think this is where all of a sudden the aha moment of healing takes place. In verse 4 it says, So Joseph said to his brothers, "Come Come near to me, please. And this is where he sends everybody out. He has this really tender, broken moment. And they came near him and he says, I am Joseph. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now... Do not be dismayed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. Isn't that amazing? It's hard for me to not cry just to think about this. So he, he tells them, don't be angry at yourself for all you, the pain and all that you've done to me. You don't speak those words unless you really have come to grips with something. For God, he says, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land for two years, and there was yet five years to which there will neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. That is huge. That should be underlined and highlighted and underscored in your Bible because that is, that is the promise of Abraham that is being spoke of there. God sent me before to preserve the remnant, to preserve the lineage, to preserve the promise that what God has made to Abraham. And that's the very last parting words, by the way. And 50 that you'll read today is that Joseph makes known of that promise. It's also what's in Hebrews 11, just after it talks about Jacob. But this is, this is such a pivotal thing. He understood that God, what God was up to. And he goes on and says, And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. Wow. He released it, right? I'm not blaming you anymore. You did not orchestrate this. But God. 
Now, you have to really think through that to understand what he's saying. He's not blaming God for all of his pain, right? So don't, don't go to, well, now he's not blaming his brothers. Now he's blaming God. No, he's not blaming his brothers because he sees how amazing God is and how good God is. He has made me a father of Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now, that's where Joseph lets it all go. That's where it all came together for him. Is because he saw God working and he realized he was partnering with God and he didn't even know it. Like he knew that he and God were walking together and God was always rescuing him and always helping him through all these times, but he did not see the big picture. When he first saw them, he thought of the dream, right? When he first saw them, he thought of the dream and all that the dream brought him. It brought him more anger and hatred from his brothers. He saw it as a negative thing. But when he, the Judah encounter, and when it all came in, then all of a sudden he saw the dream for what it was and that he was going to be elevated. This was what God was up to. To save me and my family and the whole remnant of us all. And he saw the big picture. Now his brothers, I don't think they saw the big picture until after their dad died. They buried him, and what's the first thing the the sons, our brothers say? Now he's going to kill us. Now he's going to get even with us. And so Joseph had to go in verse 19 and 50, and Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And then I think maybe eventually they got the big picture too. Here's some things I think that we ought to know. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why would God say that? Why would God make something so contingent upon that? And this isn't the only place. If you Google this on your your Bible search thing, you'll find it pops up quite often. This is a reoccurring thing through the New Testament. If you forgive others when they do wrong to you, I will forgive you of all the wrong that you have done me. And if you think about it, it's a pretty good deal, right? Because the, the number of things that were done against you by somebody else is minute compared to the number of things you have done against God, the creator of the universe, the Holy One. And Jesus tells parables about that. Remember the parable that he said about the, the one guy who had just a few little 
He had this, well, actually, he had this bucket load of millions or billions of dollars, however you want to interpret that, that he owed the, the king or the manager, and he couldn't pay that. And so he just had to go lay his, himself on the king's, you know, mercy and say, I can't pay this. Have mercy on me. Don't throw me into jail. And the king had mercy on him. And then he leaves there, and what does he do? He goes find somebody that owes him just a few little pennies. And he about strangles him and wants him thrown in jail until he can pay back. And when the king heard this, what did he do? You rotten person. You couldn't even forgive just these few little cents that somebody owed you when I forgave all of this. And what is it that Jesus is trying to make the connection with? This is the way it is with you and God. God has given, forgiven so much for you. Why would you ever make a deal out of so little? And I'm not saying that if somebody hurts you that it's not real and it's not seem like huge. But if you put it in comparison and you put it in the right frame, you'll see the big picture. How do we do that? Because it's, it's almost impossible to tell our emotions to just quit feeling the, what they feel, right? And if you've ever had anything against somebody, you know that sickness that you feel in your stomach, how it just continues to be in your head, and how do you just shut it off? So how do you do that? How did Joseph do this? I think Joseph is like the perfect example, other than Jesus himself, of how to do this. You have to see that God is in the pain. Like there's a purpose. I think that's why James 1 tells us, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, like every trial under the sun. When a trial comes your way, consider it joy. Why would you do that? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let that work its way out to make you more perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Good thing that's up there because I just kind of paraphrased that a little bit for you. But you, you get it, right? It has some meaning behind it. So you have to see God in your pain. You have to see that he is using it for something that is beyond your ability to do on your own. In other words, you have to see that you are partnering with God to accomplish something that only you and God can accomplish. God is trying to save someone through you. God is trying to encourage someone in their faith through you. God is trying to help someone grow in their faith through you. But that someone is the one who has offended you. Do you see where I'm getting at? When we let go is when we accomplish some of the greatest things that could ever be accomplished. But it only comes about when we realize we are partnering with God. Like God is wanting to do something here and the only thing that would stand in the way is me. But if I can just realize that God and I, we can do something pretty amazing. I want to take you to one more verse before we close. And it's in 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to have to kind of go through this a little bit quick. But this is one of those passages of Scripture that 
If you spent some time just really reading it and reading it and thinking about this today, I have no doubt this will really be like super beneficial. But let's just walk through it just for a second here. It says, and, I'm, and, and maybe just read the, the chapter before and the chapter of because we're kind of in between two here. It says, all this is from God. So you have to go back and read what you, to know what all of this is from God is about, right? But it's got to do with salvation. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that's highlighted, underlined. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. He reconciled, he made us right before God. And then what did he say to you after he reconciled you to God? He said, hey, here, now you are a disciple. Now you get to be a minister of reconciliation too. That's your job. That is, in Christ. God, who reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He entrusted it to us, this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And you know what an ambassador is. And that's what you are for Christ. The world is out here just dying And God is there wanting to rescue. And just as Jesus is that ambassador, that go-between between God and the world, now you, because you come into a slaving relationship with Jesus, now you are that ambassador go-between also. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through who? Through us, is what's going on here. We employ you, though, you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then look at verse 1. What does it say? Working together with him. Because that's what we do. When we become reconciled and we become right with God, he gives us this ministry of reconciliation. All of a sudden, we are like teamwork with God. We are working with him in everything we do. Then he, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, then he quotes Isaiah here. In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. And then he says this, behold, now is the favorable time. This is the favorable time that God was looking at. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In verse 3, I underlined it. But we, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. And then if you go ahead and read through that, you will see all kinds of obstacles that they do not put in their way. We do not, when they beat us and put us in prison, we do not make that an obstacle. In other words, we don't get angry at them. We don't get bitter at them. We don't retaliate. Riots, we don't retaliate. Sleepless nights, we just put up with it. On and on and on. The reason is, is why? Because we are in the process of being ambassadors for Christ, trying to reconcile people. So Paul, his... His attitude is, don't let anything get in the way. That's what Joseph did, was it not? 
when he saw all of a sudden, he's like, this was what God was up to. It was just like, it was like a light switch. Like it was not hard for him just to let go of years of harboring stuff. And he just let it go just like that. Why? Because, well, God, this is what God was up to. This is what he was doing. Verse 13 there, it just says, In return, I speak as to children. Because sometimes it really takes a while for it to sink into some of us. (laughs) Widen your hearts also. See the big picture. See that Christ is up to something. He's trying to redeem people. He's trying to save a remnant. He's trying to save a lineage that he promised. And he wants your participation. Let me just ask some questions that will help pull us along. Do you, do you feel like you're partnering with God? Do you feel like that he's trying to use you to minister, to be part of this ministry of reconciliation? That he's trying to use you to help encourage people? Do you ever feel like that when you have uh, harboring ill feelings towards somebody, whether it's your spouse or children, co-worker, a friend, whatever it be. Do you ever feel like God's asking you, let it go so that I can work? Have you ever felt that? Are you concerned for the loss more than you are concerned for your own rights? Do you love his word? And you, see, you read it and you think, yeah, that's, that's the way... I want to live. Are you compelled to not take revenge, but rather to extend God's grace? Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to pray after this. This is what Jesus, our Lord and Savior, said. These are his words. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, tell to, I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And the reason that that's connected with being sons of our Father in heaven is because that's what our Father in heaven is like, right? Does he just love the people who love him? Aren't we fortunate that that's not so? He loves his enemies, and the Bible says we are all enemies of God. Because we've all sinned and fallen short. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. He has called us to partner with him and to, and to do extraordinary things that most people will not. People should look at our lives and say, I don't know how they let that go. I would not ever have done that. I don't know how they were a better person than I would have been in that situation. That's what people should always be saying about us. Just like when we read Joseph's story. Joseph is, I think, a remarkable lesson for us to learn. It helps us understand that God is always up to something. And he's always encouraging us to partner with him. 
Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much, Father, for the lesson that we have just been taught from the life of Joseph. You used him in remarkable ways when he was living and breathing. But you are still using him even today because every time we turn to him, we see someone living and behaving the way that we ought to. Someone who is letting go of pain and, and hurt for a greater good, your good, your calling, your plan. We see someone who is partnering with you in the saving of many lives. And you have called us to be about this same work through Jesus. Help us, Father, to just evaluate what it is that you want us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.